Blog Talk Radio. This is Dr. Ross Green coming to you from the offices of Lives in the Balance here in Portland, Maine, uh, on a day um, with a horrific tragedy very much on our minds. Um, And of course, what I'm talking about is the horrific events that took place in Newtown, Connecticut, on Friday, December 14th. I'm sure that you have been consumed by that over the past three days since it happened. I have been. Um, one of the things my 12-year-old son has been struck by is while there has been so much talking on the news about the tragedy, how little people are actually saying. In um, broadcast news media, you have to say something because you're on the air. But in real life, it becomes quite clear that there are no words for some things. There are no words for some things. Some things are too senseless, too horrible, too inexplicable. Some grief, some pain, too massive for words to mean anything. Perhaps the best, the most meaningful interview I saw in the last three days was with a clergyman who had been counseling the bereaved families of the victims and who clearly knew, because he said it, that what the bereaved needed was just knowing that you were there because there were no words, and he was recounting a time when his own uh, father died. Uh, And this is an example I sometimes use for my own life when my own father died. Um, When people feel that they need to say something. And when people feel they need to say something, they often, and this goes for everybody, everybody, 
mental health professionals often feel like they have to say something. Everybody often feels like they have to say something. When in fact, frequently, there is nothing to say. There's only being there for people. Sometimes you show the greatest empathy by saying nothing. Yes, adults lost their lives in Newtown as well. And those adults were somebody's child, somebody's mother, somebody's sister, somebody's friend. So did 20 young children. And if any of us who have children were to put ourselves in the shoes of those who lost a child, there are no words. What I noticed is that either because we need to fill the air or because we're not sure what to say, or because it makes us feel like life is a little more under control when, let's face it, tragedies like what happened in Newtown make us feel like life is nowhere nearly as under control as we like to believe. We talk about the technicalities, the number of people who lost their lives, the type of weapon that was used. We'll be talking a little bit about the type of weapon later in the program, I suspect. The population of Newtown. how many miles it is from New York City or Hartford. Technicalities that take us away from the sheer magnitude of the tragedy, the loss of human life, the number of lives lost, and how it happened. number on this program if you'd like to call in and discuss what happened in Newtown is 347-994-2981 I've been um, speaking with friends and colleagues of mine who are in law enforcement, none of whom is directly involved in the case in Newtown, but in law enforcement. And I've been asking the following question. 
Well, first of all, well, I've been asking the following questions. From a purely law enforcement perspective, now that this has happened, could more have been done to keep it from happening? The answer is yes. And one of those law enforcement professionals will be joining me on my web-based radio program for educators this afternoon at 3 p.m. Eastern Time. To talk about what some of those things are, but as our president said last night in the memorial service in Newtown. It's not just going to be law enforcement that solves this problem. This is going to take some collaboration. Law enforcement's going to have to be at the table. People who feel strongly about the right to own guns are going to have to be at the table. Mental health professionals are going to have to be at the table. Advocates for those who are among our society's most vulnerable, those who may, or quite frankly may not, be diagnosed with any of a variety of mental health disorders that may somewhat increase their risk for committing acts like this. government's going to have to be at the table because this is too big for a single law enforcement agency or a single entity to pull off. We are going to have to come together and if there's anything that could bring people together, it's the faces of the children and adults who perished three days ago. Um, in the real world section of the Lives in the Balance website, I will be writing more about my thoughts on this, but in the meantime, there is simply a link to a news story in which you can see the faces of those who lost their lives tragically three days ago. And um, just so that we don't forget, because, boy, do we have a short attention span. We are so bombarded with so much tragedy 
we have become somewhat numb to it. I speak about that sometimes in my talks, about how numb we've become. There's never been so much readily available news, a lot of it bad. We are bombarded with bad news, human tragedy. Here's just the New York Times homepage this morning. Here's three headlines. New York Times homepage this morning. Ten Afghan girls killed by explosion. Car bomb kills at least 17 in Pakistan. Blasts kill 26 in Iraq's disputed areas. Along with additional stories on what went on in Newtown, including a headline that says, In Newtown, a stiff resistance to gun restrictions, with a subheading, Stalled legislation in Newtown, Connecticut, shows how limitations on shooting can run into withering resistance. Well, we can't continue to live literally and figuratively with the access to weapons that people now have. One of the law enforcement professionals I spoke with this morning, who is not only a law enforcement professional, but also a father of children, young children, also a hunter, had the following question. Why does anybody need that kind of gun? Law enforcement professionals have been advocating against the ready access to the kind of weapons that were used in the Newtown tragedy for a long time. They're worried about those weapons, as well as the type of ammunition that was used. Why would anybody need that kind of a weapon? Uh, Is it really a tremendous infringement on freedom to limit access to those kinds of weapons and place more severe restrictions on people who want to have them. There are things that we give up freedoms for because it is in the interests of the greater good. In the post-9-11 world, those of us who fly frequently know well that 
in many airport security checkpoints, you are scanned by a machine that isn't one of just one of those that looks for metal. It looks at you naked. I've been in the security line with people who objected to that, and of course we can somebody really objects to that, we've got other ways to screen them without them having to be seen naked by somebody sitting in a remote room just to make sure they don't have something on their body that could kill everybody on the plane. Um, That's a freedom... I guess that's the freedom to not be viewed naked by somebody sitting in a remote room. That's a freedom I am willing to forego uh, in the interest of the public good. Operating on the assumption that nobody knows it's me and that the naked me doesn't look a whole lot different from the naked anybody else. But that's a freedom that was sacrificed in the interests of the greater good. Some freedoms are going to have to be sacrificed in the interests of the greater good as it relates to the ready availability of weapons. And I I know, I get it. Knives are sometimes used. Instead, I was uh, an expert witness in the murder trial of a adolescent who killed one person in Lincoln-Sudbury Regional High School in Massachusetts about five years ago. And there's no question the loss of that life was tragic. So there is no perfect answer. People will shoot down anything. That isn't the perfect answer. But there are answers that will improve our odds. And one part of that answer is making sure that weapons like this and others like it are less available, less accessible. The first thing my law enforcement colleague said when I asked for his perspective on this, he's also a little confused by it all. How does this happen? It's a question many of us are asking this morning. Solving this problem, like solving any other problem, is going to take collaboration, and that's what Barack Obama said last night. I just hope that this tragedy stays fresh in our minds until Something is done, and I'm going to leave the link 
to the pictures of those who perished three days ago live on the Lives in the Balance website until something is done to reduce the likelihood that this will happen again. The families who are affected by this tragedy will try to recover in whatever way that they can. This type of thing is not one that someone recovers from quickly. And to be talking about healing three days after the tragic loss of life seems extremely premature to me. But if there is anything to be offered, it's the hope that the loss of their loved ones will serve as an impetus to keep it from happening to somebody else's loved one. Another thing that occurs to me as it relates to the relevance of what we usually talk about on this program, and you have to forgive my voice today, I'm, I have the cold. It seems to be the cold that's going around, and I have it. Uh, I will recover from my cold. I think that I know that the recovery of the families that are affected by this tragedy will take much longer. But it strikes me that um, there's another facet of what we talk about on this program that is very relevant here. We spend a lot of time on this program talking about solving problems and the need to do it collaboratively rather than unilaterally. Surely there is a way to help us make these weapons less accessible in a way that would be mutually satisfactory to most of the people in this country who feel strongly about their right to bear arms. I know that it can be done. Got to put concerns on the table, not solutions immediately. It's only after you get concerns on the table that you can start talking about solutions. Surely there's a way for us to become more vigilant and more aware of 
people who are potentially at risk for doing these things. And quite frankly, I think that we need to approach this the same way that we have approached potential terrorism in this country in the post-9-11 world. Boy, there's things that if we saw some things going on by people who we suspected could be plotting a terrorist act, people would not hesitate to contact law enforcement. The problem, of course, is that there are many, many people who are capable of committing such acts. Many. Thankfully, most don't act on what they're thinking about and planning. In fact, very few do. But there are many people in North America right now who've thought about doing something like this and may have even begun planning doing something like this. What Barack Obama said last night is that this can't become a way of life. I was in a shopping mall last night with my two children planning what I would do if somebody in the shopping mall started shooting. And that's not the way we want it to be. Surely there is a way to begin highlighting for people who is at risk for doing this and highlighting the need to contact law enforcement or mental health professionals if we suspect that somebody may be at risk for doing this. Surely there's a way to make public what the warning signs are and for us to start to take this much, much more seriously without stigmatizing those who have mental health issues. Surely there's a way to do that if we have everybody at the table who needs to be at the table and if we're putting concerns on the table and then coming up with solutions that will address the concerns of all parties. I hope uh, President Obama can pull this together. And I hope he will be joined by the collaborative efforts of those who have concerns about any solutions that might be affected. Now, I lost my train of thought. This is my cold speaking now. Let me start the sentence over again. I hope he will be joined in a collaborative effort by those who very much want to participate in coming up with a solution that addresses the concerns of all parties. As our president said, Newtown is not alone. We all 
want to feel safe. All of us who have children have some vague idea of how dreadful it would be to see one's child lose his or her life, perhaps especially in this way. But it's not just going to be collaboration. It seems to me that one of the things we talk about on this program frequently, the empathy step of Plan B, is very important here as well. Starting with what I began the program talking about, how to best show empathy to the families that have been affected by this tragedy. I feel tremendous empathy for them, but not only for them, for their children, sisters, brothers, wives, friends. And what they must have gone through during those awful five minutes or so in that school building. But now I want to talk about an application of the empathy step that we haven't really heard people talking about, or at least I haven't. Maybe people have been talking about it. I haven't seen everything that's been in the news. The hardest part about this tragedy is that the most important information that would have helped us predict this tragedy and prevent it is what was going on in the head of Adam Lanza as he appears to have been planning the execution of this tragedy. I've seen him called cowardly, I've seen him called confused. The I don't think we know enough about him to call him anything. I think that well I hope that we will get some information about what was going on in his head. once all the information about him and this tragedy, once all that information is available. But that's one of the hardest things about this. There are many people who are potentially at risk for doing something like this, 
There's a bit of a profile that's been developed and leading a very socially isolated existence, which we are being told Adam Lanza led, is one risk factor. But, of course, being a male is a risk factor for this. This is seldom done by females. That's a lot of people who are at vaguely elevated risk. We need to know what's going on in people's heads. We need to know what's going on in people's heads so that we know that they need our help, so that we know that they are thinking about doing things like this. And that's the hard part. In many instances, these people are not telling us what's going on in their heads. In many instances, they are, and we don't think they'll do it. So we don't call them to the attention of people who could help them and could prevent. Such tragedies from occurring, but that is the hard part. We need to know more about what's going on in the heads of the people who are at risk. And we need to highlight the need to do that and highlight some of the characteristics of people who may be at risk for doing this. Once again, without stigmatizing, without blaming, this can be done. Many advocacy ad oops there's the cold speaking many advocacy groups for different mental health disorders publicize the characteristics of that disorder so as to educate the public and so as to call our attention to what the disorder looks like so as to create public awareness they do that so that their loved ones will not be stigmatized and we will be better understood. We need to be much more public about the characteristics of individuals who are at risk for doing this, and we need to make sure that we are really good at drilling for information so we know what's going on in there. We've yet to learn whether Adam Lanza let anybody know what he was planning. Um, One theory is that his mother tried to stop him, and that's why she was apparently the first to be killed in this tragedy. So maybe she knew. The little that's come out, and once again, I don't trust any of this because so many of the facts in this case have been refuted once they came out. But there is a news story saying that she was, she had told someone in a gathering place that she was afraid that she was losing her son. I don't know if that's valid or not. 
But if it's true, I am sorry if she felt she had to deal with it alone. I think that's an area in which we can improve. We can improve our awareness of who's at risk, and we can improve in our skills at gathering information from them. No, it's not always going to be easy. We need to be on permanently heightened alert. Many people in the news media have been calling attention to the sheer number of these events that have happened. And my law enforcement friends have been telling me that there has been an increase since the ban on assault weapons, the federal ban on assault weapons, expired in 2004. One of my law enforcement colleagues says that's job number one. First thing we should do is reinstitute the ban. He also told me that different states have their own regulations, but that's a federal ban. And I've read that Senator Dianne Feinstein of California is going to move rapidly to have it reinstated. Good. Boy, that empathy step of Plan B sure does seem relevant here. In fact, the name of the nonprofit that I founded to sponsor these programs and to advocate on behalf of behaviorally challenging kids and their caregivers seems relevant here. There are lives in the balance. That's why I called it that. Tragedies like this simply serve as poignant, stark reminders of what the stakes are. Now, a few other questions before we have to end for today. And once again, I'll be talking about this again, but with a principal and with a law enforcement professional on the program for educators today at 3 p.m. But among the questions that have been answered in the news media and that parents have been asking, are all behaviorally challenging kids at risk? In about 20 minutes, at noon Eastern time here on December 17th, and I know that most people don't listen to this program live, so uh, I'll be doing a live web chat through the Huffington Post where I will be joined with some parents of behaviorally challenging kids and we will be answering, responding to some questions related to this tragedy. But one question is, is are all behaviorally challenging kids at risk for doing this? No. Are kids with Asperger's disorder at risk for doing this? We have read that Adam Lanza was on the autism spectrum somewhere. We don't know if that's reliable information or not. No, uh, kids with Asperger's disorder almost universally do not do things like this. The social isolation of Asperger's disorder would be considered a risk factor, but The tendency to retreat to a world of their own making seen in some kids with Asperger's disorder. By the way, that first feature would only be seen in some kids with Asperger's disorder as well. The tendency to retreat to a world of their own making, 
a potential risk factor, but no. The vast majority of kids with Asperger's disorder never conceive of doing something like this. Another question that we've been seeing answered in the news media, and I sometimes cringe when I see some of the answers to these things, but that's okay. We're all entitled to our own opinion. What should you tell a child about this tragedy? Well, here the empathy step of Plan B is going to be very important as well because you don't say the same thing to every kid. Different kids have different concerns about what transpired in Newtown, Connecticut. We need to find out what they're thinking. We need to find out where their heads are at before we know what they need from us and what they need to hear. Do they all need to be reassured, for example, that they are safe? No, some aren't feeling unsafe. Do they all need to be reassured that it can't happen here? Well, it can happen here. It can happen anywhere. I think we need to find out what their concerns are. So I find that any advice being given on what to say to a kid that people are saying should be said to all kids, there's nothing that you say to all kids. You find out what a child's concerns are, what they know, what they're concerned about, if anything, And that's where you start. It starts with the empathy step of plan B. So it seems to me before we have to end here that there are a few key words that should guide us moving forward. Certainly prevention is one of them, but to prevent, there are going to be some very important ingredients. Collaboration, very high on the list. The empathy step of plan B, so that we can get the concerns on the table of all constituencies who care about this issue, to make sure that those concerns are addressed, not solutions concerns and the empathy step of plan B is going to be crucial as well for gathering information from those individuals who are at greatest risk for committing these acts so that we know what's going on in their heads and so we can get them the help they need before more senseless tragedies like this occur.
This is our last program for 2012. We will not be uh, broadcasting on December 24th or on December 31st. I'm very sorry to be ending the year on a somber note, but um, that's the real world, and it's the world we live in. I hope that in some small way this program is helping make things better. We'll be back in 2013 doing what we do, helping caregivers of behaviorally challenging kids understand and help them better.